Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Better Pleasure Podcast with Bo and Peter. And we are with Running Light Ministries and many other ministries. Yeah. But but, but we're with Running Light today. Yeah. No, right now. And uh, we are doing episode 138 of the Better Pleasure podcast, The Pastor's Paradigm, part six. And six, we'll finish it up, I think. We're nice. going to get through this. And uh, this is a PowerPoint presentation to pastors, especially teaching pastors. Yeah. And... But it, I think it's good. I've heard some good reviews of it so far. Nice. People have listened to it and said that they really thought it was awesome. And so um, uh, I know that there are some people, there's a school in New Mexico. I've talked to the minister there, and they want us to come out. That's awesome. And actually do this over a weekend. Wow. So we we might be on the road, dude. Yeah. Going to El Paso, Texas. Nice. To do this class. And it might be a great uh fit. They're gonna come out here. This group in New Mexico is gonna be out here in at the end of November. Oh cool. And so we'll be able to solidify what we can do there. So isn't that great? So we get an opportunity, me and Peter, to really kind of break the ice and teach some young young ministers yeah. this this material. So part four is how to help those who are struggling. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, will they, uh, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Although one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken okay so we have a passage of scripture it just talks about what you know needing. the importance of accountability and sharing in a struggle with another person yeah so definitely more it's going to take more than just you probably <laughs> <laughs> so uh we also have a couple other quotes um james five nineteen through 20 says um, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So that just speaks of, obviously, the idea of someone turning him back, you know, the idea of moving people into a proper understanding. Right. First uh, Peter 4, 8 says, And above all things, have a fervent love for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Mm. Just the overall heart behind uh, what we do as Christians when we're talking to people about sinful things. And like I said, it's a, well, kind of like we've been talking about throughout the course of this this whole class, is this is a very different perspective. It's a di very different purview on Christianity. So I think a lot of pastors have this idea that moral living is acquired through moral teaching. So, you know, you stand up on the pulpit, once a week, you give a moral sermon, you give a sermon out some Christian virtue or Christian ethics, and by people listening to it, they will then be able to practice it. But what we see in these various passages, especially the Ecclesiastes 401, is that's not true, right? The moral teaching is important because it helps people understand this is right versus this is wrong, but it's actually not going to be effective in getting someone to be able to practice it. 
So if I want to practice morality within my life, I need to be joined to other brothers, in my case as being a man, uh, or other sisters in the case of being a woman, in being able to practice out those virtues that I've listened to. Um, it's, it's not very plausible, and from a biblical perspective, it's not very practical to expect someone to be able to just do it without having someone to lead and guide them along, right? Right, and all these passages that we've mentioned— um, the Ecclesiastes passage, James 5, 1 Peter 4, all talk about, you know, relational kind of teamwork. Mm. And this is something that's important is that even the senior pastor, even the minister needs a team. Right. And um, to help when they're vulnerable. Mm. And, and, uh, um, and this is something that's very, we've talked about in this study, how this kind of paradigm is very difficult for the senior pastor, especially, mm. um, um, or, you know, those that are in teaching, uh, you know, situations, right. Um, that they tend to be people that don't want to be too vulnerable and they tend to not want to, uh, or if they want to be a part of a team, they only have a certain role on the team, right. You know, they really aren't that person who's submitting underneath the team, um, they're always the person that's above, who has all the knowledge, who, you know, is never really the person at fault, but, mm. you know, that kind of idea. And, um, you know, working, I work with pro athletes and it's neat because there's a bunch of them and they all have little, little idiosyncrasies and uh, to their personalities, of course. And then they have different trials and temptations mm. that are in their life. But within the collective of the team, you know, they're they're being held accountable mm. to a greater vision. Right. And and so that's like in the military, I'm sure it's the same way. Yeah. You know, and with any kind of teamwork, that's kind of how it goes, even in a church where we have a greater vision. Right. And as we're hanging out together, we get to learn from each other. Right. Um and it kind of moves us to go, oh, wow, okay, I see maybe how something's done better. Um, I get maybe a clear idea of our total, the vision, mm. the goal. Um, you know, you just can't do that stuff on your own. So that's the point of these passages, right? Yeah. Real quick, uh, sidetrack. Side we, we were talking about progressivism before the podcast started. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a, a really famous guy back in the day named Edmund Burke. And he was writing about the revolution in France. And uh, those of you guys who've researched the revolution in France, it is kind of the starting point of what we would call progressive enlightenment ideology. So the idea was like there are these precepts or these virtues or these goals that humanity is moving towards. And uh, all the institutions that have existed in the world have prevented us from moving to this utopian vision. And so the, the battle cry of the French Revolution was egality fraternity and liberty right so we're going to be equal we're going to be free and we're going to be brothers right we're going to be united we're going to be totally on the same level and we're going to have a great community the problem is, is it totally fell apart and uh ended up in napoleon taking over the whole thing but the whole point of burke was he said something really interesting he said that communities produce information and that information is actually far superior to an expert's view. So in 
the French Revolution and many other facets of what we call the sciences in the West, we get this idea that there are these people that study at university, they read a lot of books, and then they become experts in a field, and they're able to communicate top-down the way the world should look, their vision. What Burke was saying is that actually, when you have someone who studies a field, they have an incredibly narrowed focus. They really only understand one facet of life in a really, really clear way. Whereas when you have a lot of people working together in a community, they're building knowledge and information that in a lot of ways surpasses and is more multifaceted than that singular vision. Mm. So churches can fall into that same fault. And I think this is one of the warnings of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's talking about the body, the, the numerous facets of the body. And there's a, there might be a pull in some people to say, well, this one guy this pastor has all this knowledge, right? He's gone to college. He understands church history. He understands theological theory and stuff like that. Therefore, he's ready to lead us, to unite us within one common vision or one common goal. Uh, the problem is, is like I said, one singular church working together in tandem, like you're talking about with a hockey team, working together towards the common vision of glorifying God, that church will accumulate more knowledge, right, more information over time than anyone can accumulate through a lifetime of learning through books, right? So if we want to understand what does it look like to, to live the Christian life, actually a community is going to understand that much better than an individual, right? So if you get a bunch of people together talking about the real facets of their life, moving towards like, well, what does it look like to be a Christian when it comes to being a parent? or to being an employee, or to being a boss, or to being, right, when you get enough people together talking about that, it actually accumulates more knowledge than one singular person. And that's especially true when it comes to the combating of sin, right? There's a lot of facets that go into combating sin, and it looks very different. You know, me and Bo, we, we've been in multiple different fields of this, from addiction recovery to sexual issues to just the whole gamut. And I'll tell you, it looks very different depending on which environment you're in. Right. There are some through lines. There are some universal foundations, but it is very different talking to someone who struggles with, let's say, working on their anger versus someone working on uh, an addiction to meth or something like that. Right. Those are very different issues. And therefore, it's important for us to not feel as though, like, I have it all figured out because I read this book on the topic or something. Yeah. Like that. And this is why when you outsource in ministry to a counselor, Sometimes it doesn't work right? because that counselor might only be really uh, educated in a particular field, and that's kind of their method right. of counseling. Right. And, um, and no two people are alike, and no two situations are alike. And right. you might have two people that deal with anger, but yet the reason they deal with anger might be absolutely Completely different, yeah. different you know, uh, for different reasons. And so you can't approach it the same way. Right. Uh, that's why we need to be able to, you know, yield the sword of the spirit, you know, in a very discerning way mm. um, when we do biblical counseling. Right. Um, you know, you can't just go, oh, this person's this. This is the category. Boom. That's that's it. Mm. It's not it's not so cut and dry like that. Right. You know, they might have a tendency towards something that is similar than the other person. Right. But then there's idiosyncrasies that uh, that ain't going to, you know, that really help or, or really make it clear that you can't as a counselor go in the same exact way absolutely and i think 
one of the big facets of the ministry that you and I are in is constantly trying to communicate to the church that when we filter everything into this topic of, let's say, like sex addiction or porn addiction, mm -hmm. it is doing that. It's removing the individual struggle yeah. and it's assuming a commonality in how and why people view pornography or pursue sexual things. Right. And it's, it's just not true. You know, you and I have heard yeah. a hundred, yeah. a thousand different reasons as yeah. to why people view porn and what kind of porn they view and how often the frequency, where it took them, where it didn't take them. Yeah. Right. There's literally infinite types of combinations of those. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, so the first step that we talk about is um, we kind of present a scenario and that is someone talks to you about pornography, self-gratification, um, homosexuality, gender identity, etc. What do you do, you know, in that situation? Um, the first thing uh, we say is sympathize, which means to understand or empathize, to share feelings with, hmm. um, as Christ does with us. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 talks about that. He, he knows our struggle. He became like one of us. And, um, you know, so he, he um, you know, associates us with uh, on the most intimate levels hmm. of our pain and our trial. Right. Um, and he was tempted, it says, in every way, mm. but yet without sin. Yeah. So but he knows that 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 trial. Right. You know. And so the first thing is, does the leader have sympathy or empathy mm. towards someone? Yeah. But in order to have sympathy and empathy, you kind of have to have something, don't you? Right. Right. So this doesn't come from nothing. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all comfort and Lord of all mercies, who comforts us in our tribulations that we might be able to comfort others with the same comfort with which we ourselves receive. So the concept that Paul's laying out is that my capacity to comfort, which is comfort at, at its core, is simply like you're talking about sympathizing and empathizing someone. Just being present with someone mm -hmm. in intense suffering and having the capacity to empathize with what they're going through, just sitting with them in it. And Paul says that you really can't do that unless you yourself have received that. So in other words, when I come and I speak to somebody about something that they're going through, if I'm not pulling from my own experiences, meaning I'm, I'm not sitting there with them and saying, I feel that, like what you're communicating to me, I feel that at some level. Is it the exact same thing? Absolutely not. And I'm not going to try to make it the same thing. But at some level, I can sympathize with what you're going through. And that sympathy, just that mere sympathy, can be incredibly freeing to somebody. Uh, because oftentimes when we're struggling in something for long periods of time, we can feel as though, there is no sympathy for us, meaning that we have gone in a direction that nobody else has, and therefore nobody else can understand. Right. Right. So the understanding is huge. Yeah. And so as a as a church pastor, you know, do you have sympathy? Can you empathize? And can you can you include that in your messages? Right. Um, you know, or is your is your messages just simply academic? Right. You know, almost like you're in a classroom at the at the school. Right. You know, and someone's just giving a lecture. Right. You know, which is different from a message that does have some kind of empathy or sympathy in it. Right. 
Um, and in fact, you know, again, quoting Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, when he talks about the gift of prophecy, which is the gift of teaching, um, he says, for anyone who speaks in prophecy speaks in edification, exhortation, and comfort. And so you have the edification, right? The building up of the knowledge, right? Helping people understand truth. And then you have the exhortation, which is the practical application. How are you going to apply that and encourage people and exhort people to apply what you're teaching them truthfully into the goodness of their living? But then there's the comfort, right? Being able to, like you said, sympathize with where people are at, right? Actually experience what they might be experiencing and not talking down, but talking across. Right. Yeah. And we run into a problem in the Christian life in our culture today that loves to categorize and put things in boxes all the time. We've been very influenced by pop psychology. Yeah. And so the church has really taken on a lot of um, psychological terms and, and words and things like that. So we yeah. like to think that, oh, well, that's a trauma. So now you got to go to Mr. Trauma yeah. Specialist. <laughs> right, right. Or, or this is sex addiction, so you have to go to sex addiction specialist. Or right. this is, you know, this addiction, so you got to go to that addiction specialist. And, mm. you know, there's all these little fields. Yeah. And it's not that there's not people that have maybe a good methodology right. in that field that could maybe help out with something. Right. Um, but the idea that creeps into church a lot of times, and even in church leadership, is this idea that really I can't help right. because I've never experienced that. Right. And my question and my 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 frustration mm. um, is that I get upset at that because I'm like, how can you not understand that? Right. Like, how do you not understand that as a human being? Right. Like, um, like you got to know your own depravity by now. Right. You know, you have to know your own wretchedness and your own darkness yeah. and your own ineptness and your impotence, right. you know, to be like Jesus. Right. Um, like you've seen enough of the world and like, haven't you ever helped someone who's died before? Yeah. Like, haven't you ever tried to, you know, help someone get sober and it doesn't work and they die? Haven't you ever tried something? Yeah. And it didn't work like like and haven't you ever seen something in yourself? Right. To where you can't quite get out of it. Right. Um, and there's frustration and depression or, um, you know, just the uh, conflict within. Hmm. And that's what gets me where I sometimes I'm like, you know, what happened? Yeah. Like, where did you check out? And it's even like so for someone like me. You know, I have this weird kind of uh, mental disorder that helped me not to get traumatized, which is cool. But, you know, I was in the military. <laughs> but it also – there's a lot of different side effects to it. But one is that I have very low empathy. Right. Uh, it's very hard for me to be compassionate on others. It's very difficult for me to empathize with what anyone else is thinking. And um, to some extent, what I tell people is that it has helped me in my counseling and the fact that I don't take any of it home, which is kind of nice. But – one of the other things that I feel like it's helped me do is when I go in and I talk to someone, I don't feel as though I have to have common ground with them because I don't have common ground with basically anybody, right? Mm -hmm. Even if I sit down and talk with a vet who's gone through the exact same deployment as me, seeing the exact same stuff as me, we're going to have two very different perspectives because the way I see things is, is so different, right? It's so different than the vast majority of people. So what it, has done to me is realize how do I get empathy? It's through listening, 
right? It's through me sitting with someone and just asking them questions and hearing them out and then seeking to place myself in their shoes, right? So instead of just assuming, oh, I totally know where you're coming from or assuming like, I don't know anything about where you're coming from. I'm not even going to try to just sit down with someone and say like, I'm, I'm going to try to understand this person. Yeah. Project it in your life. Exactly. You know, and the more you do that, right, the more people will actually receive it. Because there, there are times I'm not a very emotional person. Anyone who's been counseled by me will tell you, you know, it's like I don't, you know, I, I wish I was the kind of person that could just break down and start crying with someone. They're weeping. You know, I just, that's just not me. I don't, I don't experience emotion like that. But what I have heard from people I've counseled is that they appreciate me because I don't assume. I just ask questions because I don't, I genuinely don't know. And people like to be listened to. They like to feel understood. Um, what they don't like is they don't like snap judgments of, oh, you do this, therefore you did. This is what's going on, <laughs> and then you need to do this, and then you'll be better. Yeah, that's that does that's not helpful at all to people. Yeah. So you know what we're talking about is our second part of the slide, uh, our second point, and that is. Um, and we called it number two, and that was, do you wage war against sin? So it's we talk about bringing yourself into into the scenario. You know, you, you know, what is your war against? Do you lust for food? Do you lust for money? Do you lust for reputation? Do you have lust for sex? Do you have evil thoughts? Do you have evil eyes? Do you have pride, foolishness, reputation, envy, all this stuff, neglect? Mm. You know, Jesus says in Mark seven, this out of you know these things in our heart really is how humans become defiled. Yeah. And so obviously Jesus, in, when he teaches this in Mark 7, he, he is lumping all of humanity into a category. Right. And that category is one that is uh, defiled. Right. Um, so defiled just meaning that we are not holy people. Right. We are separate from being holy. Yeah. Defiled. Right. Right. So we can't really hang out with God because we're defiled. Yeah. And, and that's the simple kind of idea of that that uh, that teaching of Jesus. So it, to me, if everybody's defiled, then we as ministers, teaching pastors especially, should realize above all things that we have an incredible lust yeah. for things, yeah. uh, which has made us defiled, right. which has made us, brought us to a place of seeking salvation. Right. And... So we should be able to empathize fully with people. Yeah. You know, um, this is like we've talked about Charles Spurgeon's sermons before in the past, but yeah. this is why they're so cool. Right. Right. Is because he seems to really hit people right where we all know um, where we're at. Yeah. You know, in that idea of uh, he doesn't exclude himself at all. Right. He includes himself with all of humanity right in the in the desperate need for salvation yeah so you know we would ask people you know how do you fight to think through this how do you fight selfishness mm. right and this is tough we, this is what this class has been about is trying to help pastors not just candy coat over this and go like oh well, I did that 20 years ago right oh I did that you know no how do you do it now right like what what is the issue today Right. Um, you know, and how do you deal with those things? Is it a real fight? Is it really something that you're working through? Right. Or, or do you feel like you're coasting? Yeah. There's a, 
a couple months ago I read for the first time East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Yeah. And uh, I've talked to you about it because it's just it's yeah. such a such a good book and it's a kind of modern day retelling of Cain and Abel. And the interesting way about how Steinbeck depicts these two boys and their their brothers just like Cain and Abel in the story in the Bible and uh, the Cain character just from a young age has always had like these violent, angry, uh, divisive types of behaviors. And his brother, the more able character, he never had any of that stuff. He was just always like a good kid, quote unquote. But by the time you get to their teenage years, what's happened is the Kane character, although he still has these really negative desires within him, mm. he becomes a much more virtuous person than his brother. Because everybody is so like, oh man, like Adam, that's the Abel's character's name. Adam is just the best kid ever. So he never really works on anything. And Steinbeck does a really good job of depicting how narcissistic he's become and how self-involved he's become and how unable to empathize with others he's become. So he's almost like it's flipped at the end where people are starting to relate more to the Cain character than the Abel character uh, because he hasn't worked on anything. So... Uh, in our lives, you know, the, the harsh truth is that some of us might have these kind of very blessed lives where our struggles have not been very outward. They've been more kind of underneath the surface and they've been easier to deal with. Allow these teachings, right, the, that what we're going through right now to really convict you and say, like, look, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that your sins are just harder to nail down and they're not as obvious to other people. If you don't work on them, though, it will deprive you of empathy for others. And one of the main missions of a pastor is to empathize with the flock, right? There's a, there's a reason why Jesus doesn't just send an angel to lead our churches, right? That would be very simple for, for God to do. Just send like a divine emissary from heaven and, he would, and they would do a much better job than us. The problem is, is that the angel couldn't empathize with us. Right. There's no way that they could understand the human conflict against sin. And this is why the book of Hebrews is so important to us. Exactly. Exactly. So if you want to really perform the job, the mission that God has for you as a minister, you have to learn how to empathize. Yeah. And that means fighting, going to war with the areas of your flesh that are problematic. Yeah. So hope, we look at the word hope, and when people see your genuine struggle against the world, flesh, and the devil, they won't feel so odd and strange. Uh, Jesus is also your hope of renewed life here and in the life to come. Quote, and he saved them out of their distress, Psalm 107:13. So a lot of times leadership just is hasn't really communicated well their genuine struggle against the world the flesh and the devil mm -hmm. and so people don't people do feel odd and we've gone over that specifically mm -hmm. so you know you know hope is you know we hope we have a inner emotion you know hope is very much tied to a um a joyful uh, a, a stable joy right of something that is assured to us right. in our future. Right. And it's assured to us based on present promises and guarantees. Right. So we have this stability. So, you know, you hope that you're going to 
you know, we have hope that the house will close in 30 days, <laughs> you know, because we've put in our earnest money or whatever it is. Right. And, and lo and behold, it's going to take 30 days and boom, 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 bada bing, you get a house, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. But we hope, you know, we have that kind of assurance. Um, but, you know, hope it only develops in our life um, through struggle. Like if you already are in it, right? you really don't have hope. If you, meaning if you already have like everything going great. Right then it's hard to have a lot of hope. Right. Because you're just, you're already doing great. Right. You know, and, but your hope becomes great when you realize just how much you need God in your life daily. Mm. And, and, and so you have to have a real in-touchness with your failure Mm. and be able to communicate that, you know. So if a person does not know the power of the cross to forgive sin, then they're defeat, defeated, right? If they don't realize that, hey, God can do something in your life and get you to heaven, um, then they're gonna they're gonna feel like, man, I can't do it because they can't do it. You know, they they're, they're gonna be stuck in trying to do things on their own ability and not really having hope in the work of Christ. Right. You know, and that can really be. Uh, and so I think the way a lot of people teach in a, a lot of leadership is, is that it doesn't produce a lot of hope because mm-hmm. you always feel like the pastor, the leaders, like already, you know, you know, the kingdom of God is within and yeah. I got the kingdom. And, right. You know what I mean? And it's right. like, man, these are great. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? And everything's positive. And, you know, it can be like that where you kind of go, man, like, boy, you know. Um, and it, it can really diminish. Yeah, there's a, a, a proverb that says, um, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Mm-hmm. But when desire comes, it is a tree of life. So the idea there is that um, there are many different facets to the proverb, but one that you could take is that if I give someone a false expectation when it comes to their hope, it defers it. And when that happens, the, the heart for the Hebrew was the center of passion and desire. So to say you have a, a, a sick heart, it doesn't mean you're depraved. It's not like a depraved heart. It's saying that it's it's a it's a def, def, infirmed heart. It's one that's unable to hope anymore. Mm. So in other words, if I present myself as like, yeah, I got it all together, and this is what the Bible says, and just go and do likewise, essentially I'm giving someone a false expectation of reality that will have the effect of denying that person any hope. Right. They won't have any expectation. It will be deferred for them and it will make their heart sick. Mm. Right. That's the significance of the latter part of the proverb where it says when it comes, it is a tree of life. Well, as Christians, aren't we all hoping for the tree of life? Right. The tree of life that was present in Eden that we fell away from and will be represented to us in Christ when we go to heaven. Right. There is an expectation, but it's a true one. Right. It's one that's actually based on the word of God. If I dangle a false hope in front of someone. I'm doing them damage. But if I give them a true hope, even if they'll never get right, I'm never going to taste of the tree of life in this lifetime. I won't. I will in the next, but not in this lifetime. Even if I'm never going to fully taste of it, that reality can be a huge comfort for me simply because I know it is reality. Mm. So the gospel precision, um, this is why the gospel is so important, that we have a good understanding of the gospel. And uh, uh, 
Pascal in his wager says it is equally dangerous for a man to know God without knowing his wretchedness and to know his wretchedness without knowing God. Mm. And this is good. And this is how uh, we put down how does the gospel deal with man's pride and his depression. Mm. And so this is where I think what we're trying to get at is that Pascal saw something really important. And that is there's two equal problems, right? And they're kind of opposite. One of them is one of them is people, man, human beings knowing God without knowing their depravity, which leads us to a prideful state, right? And a self-exalted state, right? So if the Pharisees knew their wretchedness then they wouldn't be so darn judgmental and prideful. Right. Right? Right. But it's equally bad for someone to know their wretchedness without knowing God. Right. Right? Which puts a person in extreme depression. Right. Right? And uh, almost like a nihilistic attitude of like... Don't matter. Doesn't matter. You know, there's nothing I could do. Right. And, and you see those character qualities, it's funny, in the extremes in the church. Mm. And it's interesting. You see them in the places of leadership. Right. And you see them in the places of the person who is most sick, yeah. probably, in the church. Yeah. And isn't that weird? You see the unhealthiness most in the, in the pastoral teaching roles, meaning you see what Pascal is talking about. You see the person who knows God, but doesn't understand his own wretchedness, mm. most in that teaching position, meaning yeah. it's just coming off very prideful all the time. Right. Right? I got it all together. God's done all these great things. I'm so good. Everything's great. Da-da-da-da-da. So you have that. And then in the in the poor sap yeah. who comes in and sits you know, in the pew daily, yeah. <laughs> you know, weekly, monthly, who's just absolutely can't get out of his own self-loathing. Right. You know? Um, just two things, you know, two very bad places to be at, mm. but yet one of them's much more acceptable yeah. in the culture, you know, and what we're getting at is that we need to understand the gospel well, you know, cause we understand that it deals with our pride, mm. you know, the gospel deals with our pride very well, Yeah. right? And the gospel also deals with our depravity and our depressed state yeah. really well, too. Yeah. Right? So that's important. That's what Pascal's getting at. And that's what we're trying to help people, pastors, understand is remember the gospel. Yeah. Remember that it pushes us down where right. we need to be pushed down, but it also exalts us where we need to be exalted. Right. I think it's a, in James, right, where he says, let the, let the rich man... Glory, glory in his basically his humility humiliation and let the poor man glory in his exaltation that's right right and and what a cool passage that just really goes right so well with what blaze was seen yeah you know in his day um so now we want to take a little moment and just talk about the repent method yeah because this is something that's pretty popular. Right. Right? Right. So a misconcept or a concept misunderstood is this. If repentance meant a total never again dealing with an area of sin, then we would never need to confess a sin twice. Right. 
So, so when we talk about repentance, we have to understand what we mean by this. Right. Right. And so a misunderstood concept is that if repentance met a total never again dealing with an area of sin, then obviously we would never need to confess the sin twice. Right. So when we say to someone, just repent. Right. Um, there's a problem with that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, a pretty big one. So I think we got a couple passages up there that talk about confessing. I, I think the my favorite one, I, I believe it's the Matthew 6 one mm-hmm. where Jesus, and I was just talking to someone about this this week, where Christians conveniently leave out the repentance part of the passage where it's the famous, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Um, seven times? And Jesus says, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So most people quote it like that. But actually what the passage says <laughs> is that if someone repents, forgive them 70 times seven. So the idea of Jesus is not just, well, you know, you blew it, you sinned against me, um, so therefore I'm going to just unconditionally reconcile myself to you no matter what. It's the idea of you've sinned and you repent, then I forgive you. But notice the implication in there that's also missed when you leave out that word. The implication is that you can sincerely repent of the same sin 490, well, infinite amounts of times, and yet still make the same mistake again. And that's a really telling passage. Yeah. I like the Luke 17, 4, when we say where it says, um, if he sins against you seven times in a day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just awesome. In a day. In a day. So think of it that way. Seven times in a day, someone comes up to you, and you get the idea it's it's probably the same kind of sin. Yeah. You get the idea that it's a repetitive sin. Right. And this is what's odd is we use these terms like, oh, well, that means habitual sin. Yeah. Like if you habitually are in sin, then you haven't repented. Hmm. You know, and you're like, you know, oh, well, that that's tough. Name me a sin that's not habitual. That's what I always say. Right. right? Name me something that's not habitual. Right. What is not habitual? Right. You know, very tough, right? So it's a repentance. We challenge people all the time right. in leadership to really think through this term repentance yeah. and what it means and what it doesn't mean, mm. you know, and so. Remember, if you go up to someone and say, hey, we'll just repent and you'll be done with it. Well, yeah. OK, then your idea of repentance is a never again dealing with that area of sin. Right. So if you say like, well, I've repented of lust, you know, OK, well, does that mean you never lust again? Right. I've repented of pride. You never you don't have pride again. See, you see the logical problem right. is like you can. And this is where some leadership teaching is really, really off right right is where they have a theological idea that if you just repent you will be healed if you just repent and there is not that there's not any truth to that right but it's it's not a total truth right right and that's the problem so the mistake is looking at the repentance right as a singular action i repent that's it 
biblically what we see is that repentance is a process from which we can backslide, right? So in other words, once all the word repent means is to have a change of mind about something, right? But in order for repentance to be true, in order for it to be real, is where my, and this is the whole balance of faith and works uh, manifest as well, is that if I had 100% perfect repentance, what that would mean is that my behavior would match up perfectly with my change of mind, right? I have a change of perspective about something. That would be perfect repentance. The moment that I realize, I recognize this is wrong, I want to start working on that, that's when the process began. You repented. You did repent. You're in the process now. And you're in the process of repentance. That's right. Your behavior is not matching what you know to be true. You're in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, this I find myself practicing. Romans 7 is the repentance passage. That's what that process looks like. Paul knows that these things are wrong. He's repented. He understands that the law of God is just. He's trying to live into it. But he's behaving in a way that doesn't match what he knows, right? And he's working on that, right? He's pursuing better behavior through his actions, right? And when we understand the process of repentance, we could also give more practical help to people of what are the things that are helpful in this process and what are the things that are harmful, Mm -hmm. right? What are the, and most of what me and Bo do is giving out that kind of practical information to people where people just think, well, I just need to repent. I don't need to get a filter on my phone. I just need to repent to this. Well, no, no, that's a part of the repentance process, right? You, you, you already understand that porn is wrong, but you don't have the willpower right now to say no to that thing every time you go to bat. So you need to produce for yourself a way to better fight the flesh, right? To better stand against the evil day, right? That's a part of that process. And it's a, it's a beautiful one. <laughs> but, but again, if you see it as a one-time action, you'll never do something like that. Right. Right. Why do I need accountability? I repented. Right. Well, accountability is a part of the process of repentance. It yeah. helps you. And this is, the, and when it comes to a sin like, say, pride, which is, you know, the chief of all sins. Right. You know, um, you know, how do you repent when it comes to pride? You know, how do you do that? Right. Like, what does that look like in a person's life? Hmm. You know, well, the only way to repent of pride is humility. Yeah. And humility, what does it look like biblically? Submission hmm. to one another, confession to one another, you know, serving one another. Um, very lowly things yeah. right that aren't popular and aren't very very cool no so if you're a senior pastor or a teaching pastor and you don't find yourself confessing and you don't find yourself serving other people uh in ways that challenge you in ways that are if you will kind of dirty mm. you know if you don't find yourself you know, in these places of humbling yourself before people in the body, then, you know, you're not repenting. You're not in the process of repentance. Right. You know, and 
so you see how repentance is like a lifestyle, right? And it's and the Bible teaches that repentance is a grace of God. You know, it's something that God needs to give us. It's something we seek daily. So there's there should be a prayer of repentance always in our life. Yeah, you know? here's a <clears throat> here's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wrote a book called Life Together, and the last chapter, and it's all about church community. The last chapter in it is all about confession. And now listen to this. Now, so he's talking about the person who confesses. He says, now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Now he can be a sinner and still enjoy the grace of God. He can confess his sins and in this very act find fellowship for the first time. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. The sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with with the brethren in Jesus Christ. Mm. So in Bonhoeffer's view, there's no genuine fellowship in the church that is not predicated on confession. That's right. Because if I'm not confessing, then I'm presenting a, a false image of myself yeah. in a church context. And it's funny because in a church context, a lot of times people will come up to you and they'll go, hey, I could tell, you know, you're not doing really well. They'll say things like that to you when you're when you're maybe in a, a state of confession and repentance. Yeah. And you try to explain to them like, no, I'm doing great. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, God's teaching me so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I've been struggling with something and dealing with it before the Lord and they're like, Oh, okay, I'll pray for you. But it's almost like a negative. Right. And that it just, you're doing something odd. That's right. You're doing something odd. Right. Right. And this is where the church would rather be in Peter Pan land. Right. You know, than in real reality. Right. And but this comes from the top down. Mm-hmm. You know, the top down teaches the people, you know, what Christianity should look like. Right. You know? And so if the top isn't doing this, then there's a real educational problem, and we've gone over those. So we have to help people by helping them defeat misconceptions on repentance. Yeah. You know. So the prayer of the unrepented. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I'm so glad I don't struggle with sexual sin like them. Look at what I do for you. Yeah. You know, so that's that's the prayer, right? Right. You know, man, God, I'm so glad I'm not like those people on the street. Man, I'm so glad I'm not addicted. Yeah. I'm so glad. Well, no, I think about it like, no, I. you know what? I, there's so many things that are in them that are in me, Yeah. you know? And why am I where I'm at? Mm. Is it not for the grace that I go? Right. You know? Um, so um, this is from Charles Spurgeon, The Repentance Unto Life. Um, it says, repentance is also a continual lifelong act. It will grow continually. I believe a Christian on his deathbed will be more bitterly rep- or will bitterly repent than ever he did before. It is a thing to be done all your life long. Hmm. Sinning and repenting, sinning and repenting. Make up a Christian's life. Repenting and believing in Jesus. Repenting and believing in Jesus. Make up the consummation of his happiness. <laughs> I love that. No. You must not expect that you will be perfect in repentance before you are saved. No Christian can be perfect. Mm. But what 
what what consummates our happiness is the confession repentance kind of dealing with things right you know so in order for christians to be happy truly happy we must go through the process of sinning repenting sinning repenting repenting believing in jesus (laughs) we must go through it which is such a radically different view than most christians would have because most christians would hear that and be like that sounds like a crappy life man (laughs) i'm I'm just gonna have to keep fighting my sin of me and you've heard that's not victorious (laughs) you've heard so many pastors (laughs) get so upset with us saying this stuff like dude like where's the hope you know the victory you're just giving these people this depressing message that they're just going to be fighting their sin all their life it's like no like that's that's the joyous life yeah that's the happy life a pursuit of god yeah and that's how the gospel is working it's always showing your need to be pushed down right and it's always showing your need for exaltation right you humble exaltation right and so it's constantly going like that that's why we brought up the blaze pascal quote right it's constantly moving that way the gospel yeah so it's pushing you down man i suck and it's pushing you up god's doing a work yeah. i suck god's doing a work <laughs> you know and thing is is if you're not in that in that then again, we become prideful or we become depressed, right? Right, And we have to have that balance in our life at all times. And this is what repentance is doing. It's giving us both. This is the action of the Christian that's that's bringing us to this understanding of the gospel, this balance. Another quote from Bonhoeffer on that. In confession occurs the breakthrough to the cross. The root of all sin is pride, superbia. I want to be my own law. I have a right to myself, my hatred, my desires, my life, and my death. The mind and flesh of man are set on fire by pride. It is precisely in his wickedness that man wants to be as God. Confession in the presence of another uh, of, a, of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is a shame that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful death, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. Because of this humiliation so hard, we continually scheme to evade confessing to a brother. But it was none other than Jesus Christ himself who suffered the scandalous public death of a sinner in our stead. He was not ashamed to be crucified for us as an evildoer. It is nothing else but our fellowship with Jesus Christ that leads us to the shameful dying that comes in confession, in order that we may in truth share in his cross. The cross of Jesus Christ destroys all pride. Mm. Yeah, and you can see how this plays a part of hope too, where the misunderstanding is people go, man, you're not giving him any hope and victory. No, no, our hope is in the victorious work of Christ. Right. That's where the hope is. Right. It's in it's in a pro it's in a, a work that has been done and a promise that's built on a stable work right. that God has done for us. Right. So it's a God who cannot lie. It's a stable promise. Right. That's the hope. The hope isn't that we're gonna have it all here. Right. You know? And yeah, we have the abundant life does start here. Right. 
right? But it, it, it's it, it, but that's where we get it wrong, where we start going, no, I got the victorious life. Yeah. Oh, yeah? As victorious as you're going to be as when you're in heaven? <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it starts here. Yeah, the kingdom of God is within. Yeah. yeah, I've come to give you life and life to the fullest. Yeah. You know, but, you know, if you looked at the disciples, what did Paul say? He said, we are of all people to be pitied. Yeah. You know, well, today, what what pastors would say to Paul to correct him, they would be like, Paul, you got it wrong, bro. Oh. See, God's given us the abundant life. <laughs> he said, you know, that I have come to give you life and life abundantly, <laughs> you know, and bro, like your sickness and your persecution and your, you know, dour, sour, being hard pressed on every side and, you know, that you, you know, are in agony all day long and all that you were, you know, hidden treasures and jars of clay and, you know, like pottery that's broken and, you know, all this, man, you're just not experiencing the victory of the Lord, bro. I mean, they would totally go against, right. you know, the things that he talked about. Right. I store up in my flesh all the sufferings <laughs> you know, that are lacking. <laughs> the you cross, know. yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, in the church, Colossians 127 and that whole 28 section. But, yeah. um, you know, we would correct the apostle today. Yeah. And that's the sad part. Right. right? We don't see we don't really see heaven as just all that. We see it here. Right. You know, we live in an abundance culture and it's really affected the way we look at things for sure. Yeah. So we third, we have to help them fight. It's important that you give the congregates tools to fight against desires that go astray. The following is what we emphasize at the beginning to a focus per to focus a person on what uh, will be needed. Um, and this is like a daily work. So our focus is we talk a lot about the glory of God. We talk a lot about drinking from Jesus. We talk a lot about accountability. We talk a lot about confession. And I got to tell you that I just got done one of uh, this section on lust by uh, Mr. Scott um, in his book, The Exemplary Husband. Yeah. And it was so interesting that Stuart Scott, Stuart right? Scott. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um it's funny. It's like, you know, we hear this a lot in authors and teaching pastors and things like that, that, you know what, dude, to get rid of your sin, what you need to do is just be in the word. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I even hear it from people I counsel. Like, I don't understand why I'm falling into sin. I'm reading my Bible. Every day. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's just hilarious because drinking from the word is important. Right. It's right. not that it's not important, <laughs> but. But if you think that getting in the Bible right. is going to prevent you from being subject to a fallen body in its depravity, mm. in its sinful inclinations, then you're not reading the text <laughs> that you're saying you're reading. Yeah. You know, no one, nothing good in my flesh dwells. Right. You are fallen in all ways, mm. right? Um, you bear ima an image of God, but a slight image of God. <laughs> it is a fall. It is a messed up image, man. It is. It has been through some it stuff. It is being restored, but remember, it's being restored. <laughs> right. You know, and so it's funny how you can pull out every one, any one of these things that we emphasize, right. and you can overly emphasize them. Right. And sometimes a church will emphasize one at the expense of the other. Right. So, hey, just drink from Jesus, you'll be fine. That's how you get rid of it. Yeah. Oh, you got, a, you, you got a problem with sin? 
just be accountable. Man, we get hardcore accountability, more accountability, yeah. <laughs> right? And you'll get better. And, and you can do it with any of them. Right. Like, oh, you're just not giving glory to God. That's right. the issue. You give glory to God's like, guys like, man, I think I want to give glory to God, yeah. <laughs> but you're not doing it right. Yeah. Right? And, you know, well, confession, man, that's it. You just confess. And I have a book, by the way, listeners, a book of how to get rid and healed of every disease imaginable. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you've seen it. <laughs> I have. And every disease has the same exact remedy. Yeah. Repent, <laughs> confess, <laughs> denounce. That's right, man. And it's hilarious. The guy could have put it on one page. Yeah. It's, it's like 500. 500 <laughs> he pages. Could have, he could have done it on one page. <laughs> and the thing is, is again, you see the overemphasis of right. one at the expense of all of them together. Right. Right? God made it so... There wasn't one thing that we could go to and just go like, oh, I, I, I got it. It's this method. Right. You know, instead, it's a work of grace through all kinds of diverse things. Yeah. Right. And that we really there's so much diversity in these things that we can't just. Like brag about it. It's really it's going to take a miracle. Right of all this diversity to impact us. Right. You know, this drinking from Jesus, having glory of God, accountability, repentance, confession, all these things. It's going to take a miracle for all of it to be a part of our life, and we're going to need everybody to see these grace gifts in action, you know, and to come upon us in special ways. Hmm. So God's established the body of Christ in such a diverse way right. that we can't, just boast in this one thing. Right. And it's really unique, I think, that God's done this. Mm. You know, and this is why in First Peter, it's the gifts in the body are called the manifold grace of God. Right. It's, it's meaning if you want to see the manifold grace of God, it's weird. We would think it's one thing. Right. But it's not. It's many, many things. Right. That make up the manifold grace of God. Right. So, it, it overwhelms us yeah. as humans. How can I, how can I get made right? Mm. How can I get all these things done in my life? It's going to take grace. Mm. Help me just to step in these ways. You know, help me utilize people. Confession. I need to utilize people. Accountability. I need to utilize people. To glory in God. It takes a mindset, right? It starts, it's a thinking thing, a renewing of your mind, right? Drinking from the well means action, literally having to pick up a Bible and read it. Yeah. You know, so you can see where, you know, it's going to, a lot of our personalities might go one way, you know, but really God is going to do this work of sanctifying us through this diverse package. Right. You know, which shows us all just how vulnerable we are, right? <laughs> how much in need we are. Yeah. You know. So, we continue that list a little bit and uh and then we get into um kind of Galatians 6:1, a passage that you brought up a bunch, right? Mm -hmm. Uh brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
So spiritual meaning belonging to the divine spirit. The first qualification is you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. And the warning for lead leaders is we too are susceptible to the same trespass, looking to yourself lest you also be tempted. Don't work with sexual issues if you are tempted in working with them. Gender specifics are good boundaries in counseling, but not always necessary in a gay culture, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, so if it's like, it, you know, that, that this should be, you know, important. I mean, it should be something that's maybe common sense. Right. But, um, you know, it's something to be mentioned, right? That sometimes when we are in leadership, you know, we've talked about being vulnerable enough to know that if we're not going to do counseling in a specific reason area, we should be very open to it. Like right. the reasons why we're not doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So maybe, maybe the person who comes in, you know, man, you like, you really think they're awesome. You right. love them and you're just, you're lusting after them. Well, maybe the best thing to do is just say, hey, or the best thing to do is just say, hey, you know, I should probably not be in this, this framework. Right. You know, and that kind of thing. And that's important, you know, for our lives. Absolutely. We can go too far in that. Right. Yeah. Where we go like, hey, I don't want to struggle with something, so I'm not going to ever engage in that thing. Right. And we hear people say that, too. Right. Which uh, sometimes seems pretty weird. Yeah. You know, it's like I haven't drunk in 30 years, but I don't want to talk to a guy who drinks because I don't want to stumble. Yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> that would be weird. Yeah. Like, no, like, no, like we have to learn to fight even within and as counselors or you know, there's times in my counseling where in the middle of the counseling, I'm fighting sin. Right. Like where I'm like, hey, there's something attractive about this person. Right. But I'm, I'm keeping my heart in check, my mind in check. Everything is there. And I might need to talk to another leader. Right. And just say, hey, that person does, you know, you know, I mean, I'm dealing with it, I think, right. But I just want to let you know. Might yeah. be something like that. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know. So... Um, there's that kind of passage. Do you want us to comment on this passage at all? Anything? Uh, there's just something you were saying that I think is so good. Um, I, I was just listening to a talk, and he was pulling out the uh, the two great commands: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. And he pointed out something that's really obvious and clear, where he says, like, when you look at love, the kind of love that God is asking us to perform um a lot of it i mean not not all of it but much of it could be summed up in service right serving god and serving your neighbor and he says so serving your neighbor as yourself would insinuate that you're serving yourself that you know what you need and you're allowing yourself to serve out of that so if i'm coming in and counseling somebody but i don't know how to receive counsel and I don't know how to work on my stuff, then I'm going to be screwing up their life and my life. You know, like I'm, it's not going to be good for me at all. And that, that might be another facet of what Paul's warning, consider yourself, lest you all be tempted, also be tempted. Uh, Cause it, it could go even deeper than just, you know, I'm, I'm counseling an attractive woman. You know, I might be counseling a guy and he's complaining about his marriage and I see facets of his complaints in my own marriage and I'm, I'm getting bent out of shape and I'm like, gosh, you know, women do suck, you know, <laughs> and like, gosh, they, they're all doing the same thing. And I'm, and then I'm bringing that home with my wife and I'm, I'm getting mad at her for doing things that, 
she's not even aware of or things that aren't even that big of a deal, but I'm overemphasizing them because I'm getting riled up in these counseling sessions or, yeah. you know, whatever. So there, there are so many different ways it could, it could work. But the main thing is, are you working on your stuff? Yeah. Are you, are you, it, he that is spiritual is always someone who's pointing people back to the word. Right. For the answers. Right. You know, not being tempted to go along with the, uh, rationalization or justifications that you might hear, right? You know that kind of thing in a in a counseling appointment. Absolutely. You know where you're not like, hmm, yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's not a sin. You <laughs> know, or something like that. You know, absolutely. Yeah, lest you be tempted, lest you go that path. You know, you sp the spiritual person is one that goes, no, that's sin. Yeah. You know, that's not right. Yeah. You know, and this is important, and I'll say this, and it's going to freak people out, of course, but you know. Some people struggle with pornography or visually sexually explicit visualization. Right. But do not struggle within the ministry. Right. It's true. And some people do not struggle with sexually visual stimulus and yet commit infidelity within right. the ministry. Right. And so we have to be aware of that. Right. Right. Just because someone likes walks by a magazine, for instance, and goes, "Woo, I like that," yeah. it doesn't, and maybe even self gratifies, hmm. doesn't mean that the person necessarily comes to the fellowship and sees brothers and sisters in Christ in a lustful way. Right. This is where I think a lot of people get this really mixed up. Right. Right. Just because. You know, human beings are very apt to be able to compartmentalize things in our life. Mm. And we're able to see contextually what is uh, see different contexts within our life. Mm. So we recognize that when I go, human beings know that when they go to the college campus to a basketball or football game, they recognize there are going to be uh, certain acceptable cultural norms mm. in that context, yet they know that when they come to church on Sunday that there are other uh, ways of behave, behaving that are deemed acceptable or not. Right. And this is something that, you know, we're a part of in this world all the time. Right. And people are like, no, I act the same way everywhere I go wrong <laughs> no that's not true if only yeah yeah if only no but you oh you know we go to a game and we right. we see we sit there and watch cheerleaders on the sideline right you know we we are part of things that have multifaceted lustful things going on within it right and we we it's not like we stand up and be like you know this is wrong and it's an injustice and you know or, or no but if we went to the church and someone threw cheerleaders up in the front of the congregation right. and did a little, you know, um, shake and bake, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, people would be very offended. Right. You know, rightfully so. <laughs> rightfully <laughs> so. That's right. And so we, you know, again, it's not so cut and dry. Right. Like people think. That some people can, and that's, that's interesting, they can contextualize things yes. in their mind That's and right. so they can see like this in the, in a weird kind of sin justification they could feel okay 
viewing pornography, mm-hmm. but lusting after like a woman that they know in person, that is a bridge too far for them. They don't like that, right? Their conscience won't yeah. allow them to go that direction. I mean, that's that's certainly been my personal case, right? You know, um, what is the what would we call a person who cannot contextualize? So what if a person cannot contextualize? I mean, I don't know if there's like a scientific term for it, <laughs> but it's not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. right. So if someone can't contextualize, we would look at them and we would say, oh, they have some kind of behavioral issue. Right. They're not able to read things well. Right. They're not able to see things properly. Right. They can't read a room. They can't read where they're at. Right. You know, they tend to just lump everything into these giant categories. Right. You know, um, and so you might go up to that person and go like, hey, man, loosen up. Yeah. And they're like, what? You know, and they can't <laughs> loosen up. Right. You know, it's like they can't. They they go to the beach and they're like, why is everybody in bikinis? Yeah. You're like, because we're at the beach. Well, I think it's wrong. I think it's very lustful. You know, they just can't see it. Right. You know, and you're like, well, we're at the beach. You know, and you, no matter how many times <laughs> you say that, it's like, it ain't going to happen, right? Yeah. It's like, no, just, no, there's no no reason to do that. You know, and they just, they got to see it every way the same way. Right. They can't go to a ball game. They can't go to anything. Right. Right? That kind of thing. We would think of something's wrong. Right. In those, those people. Right. You know, there's a behavioral issue. Like put it in a another way. So I think drinking is a good example here. So it's like most Christians would would accept that drinking for the Christian is is okay. Like we're okay to to have drink to have alcohol in moderation. Um, it, it's it's very very difficult and and kind of makes nonsense of the scriptures to argue that we're called as Christians to never touch the stuff concerning the fact that Jesus drank it, he turned water to wine, you know, this is, there's a lot of context where drinking is happening in the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but the Old. Yeah, But quite a bit. Right, quite a bit. But let's, uh, let's just assume for the sake of argument that we're, we're on the same page, that drinking in moderation is okay. Contextualizing drinking is important if you're going to enjoy it in moderation. Hmm. So what would you think of somebody who's drinking, even if it's just like a glass of wine at a business meeting or like at his desk, you know, he's just like, (laughs) he's just sitting at his desk doing his morning numbers and he pops out a bottle of Merlot and just starts pouring himself. You'd be like, whoa, that's inappropriate. And what if he responded like, what? I could drink in moderation. It's okay as a Christian. You'd be like, yeah, but this is the wrong context, right? And and a lot of times people who are alcoholics, that's their problem is that they don't understand the context. They can't drink a small amount at a particular time. They just, I kind of want one now, right? <laughs> they just go and then they keep going until they've moved too far, yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that's right. And so, you know, pornography is a sin. Right. And it's something that we recognize as a sin. Right. Um, and that's where it differs from drinking. Right. And that drinking a, a beer or a glass of wine is not a sin. But you could put it in the but terms you can of put it, sexuality is not a sin. That's right. Sexuality so is not I a put, sin. So I put sex with my spouse in that context, and all of a sudden it's 
holy and pure right. and encouraged. Yeah. I take it out of that context. Right. You're in the park. Right. <laughs> yeah. Even if it's with my wife. <laughs> and like, we're well, doing it's my it. wife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with this? You know? So the old lady's walking her dog. <laughs> and there are Christians, right? I mean, Bo talk about this a lot on this podcast. Christians throughout history that haven't been able to do that. Right. That they have looked at as just like, nope, sex is bad. Right. right? It's bad in one context. It's bad in all contexts. That's right. So if someone is in leadership and they're and they view pornography don't necessarily just go oh well they're they're i got to get them out of ministry because they're lusting within ministry Hmm. no not necessarily right you know they might and they might not you have to delve in a little more right right and find out like you know more of the nuances Hmm. of their particular situation yeah and and it's not just necessarily that, uh, you know, they might be in ministry and never have wanted to be with anybody that they're around. They're literally right. scared right. to, like, go that direction. Right. You know, they would, they, you know, see First Peter or First Timothy chapter 5 as a precious passage. Yeah. And they really, that, they hold that very dear. Um, so um, that's, that's, there's more to this than meets the eye. Right. There's a complexity. There's there. a complexity there. And so we have to be careful, you know. So uh, the last note on the terms of sexual addiction and demonizing pornography. Uh, Sexual addiction is a hot-button issue. What we mean by sexual addiction and what we don't mean. Okay, so. So there is a a, uh, panorama of thought here. So I'll give you two perspectives that we would tentatively agree with and then one perspective that we don't. Right. So for the most part, the utilization of the word addiction is is a tough one, because usually what people mean when they use the word addiction is they're thinking about substance addictions. Right. So your body develops a biochemical dependency upon a substance. Right. So the simplest one most people know about is caffeine. Right. There are a lot of people who are addicted to caffeine. There's probably. It's probably a, a majority of people in this country that are addicted that and to caffeine. sugar, right? That and sugar. And even though it's an addiction, we wouldn't say, man, dude, we need to have an intervention for that guy. He goes to Starbucks every day, you know, <laughs> and it's just, I don't like it. You know, you understand that while it's an addiction, it's not a destructive one. And so you leave it be. So that's, but that's what the word addiction means. It means that your body has a chemical dependence on a substance. And so therefore you are drawn not just by mere desire. It's not just, I want to drink. It's you have an actual biological response if you don't, right? Your body will go through withdrawals if you don't drink, if you don't uh, partake in that substance. That's what we tend to mean about addiction. And therefore, that word addiction is outside of what we would normally call psychology. It has nothing to do with psychology. It's something that you can verifiably look at in somebody's biology, right? You can scientifically prove it. Now, what some psychologists have done is they've made a distinction between what they call substance addiction and behavioral addiction. Now, they obviously can't mean the same thing as a substance addiction, though. Someone could be addicted to working out, for instance. Now, what are they addicted to? Is it a has their body become dependent upon working out? Would they go through withdrawals? Well, no. They might go through a psychological withdrawal, meaning if you deprive them from the thing that they're that they're doing all the time, 
it might cause a depression or an anxiety because they're so used to doing it, but it's not the same thing as a substance addiction. And so we have to be very careful. We have to separate the terms if we're even going to think this way, right? So a lot of Christians have made the mistake, and it is mainly Christians, it's mainly religious people who have made this mistake, of thinking that when we use the term sex addiction, it's a substance addiction. And they treat it as if it's a substance addiction, that you're becoming addicted to the substance of pornography. Now, the way that they kind of square that circle is they say, well, your mind releases chemicals when you view pornography or when you have sex with a prostitute or something like that. Now, that's true, but the problem is, is it's the same exact chemicals that release in your brain when you have sex with your wife. So you can't possibly say that sex is someone, to put it another way, is someone a sex addict if they have sex with their wife every day? And pretty much everyone would say, well, no, of course they're not a sex addict, right? They're having sex with their wife. So what you see right there is like, okay, so it's not the chemicals that are being released that we're determining addiction. There is a moral component to it as well. We're also looking at social norms and we're saying, well, if someone's having sex with multiple partners every day, then they might be a sex addict. But if they're having sex with one partner, then they're not. Yeah. For instance, a cultural norm uh, would have been, uh, our cultural non-norm uh, non would have been homosexuality right. 100 years ago. Right. It would have been called a sex addictive behavior. Right. But today, if you walked up to someone who's homosexual and you said, oh, you're a homosexual, and they go, yeah. You go, oh, you're a, a sex addict. Yeah. They would look at you kind of weird. Yeah. Like, what? You know? Because the way we look, because addiction is being used predominantly um, through a moral lens. Right. And so people are looking at morality and going, oh, that doesn't fit into the moral norm, so that's an addiction. Right. Um, but if it fits into the moral norm, then it's a non-addictive issue. Right. And so in order for something to be categorized correctly as a behavioral addiction, it would have to rise to the level of dependency and a psychological dependency as well as habituation, that it would mirror an actual addiction. So me and you have spoken to guys that if someone categorized them as a sex addict, I'd be like, okay, you know, I, I'm okay with that because they're viewing pornography for like nine hours a day and they're masturbating like four or five times in that nine hour period to the point where they're genuinely having urinary tract problems <laughs> because they're just abusing their body, yeah. right? Someone like that, I'd be like, okay, if you want to call that guy a sex addict, I'm okay with that, right? Because his behavior is getting to such a intensive level, right? That it's not, I don't have to look at that from a moral lens. I don't have to be like, well, you know, some social taboos and no, it's like the dude is damaging his body, right? There's something wrong. Even if uh, I was counseling a guy who needed to have sex five times a day with their wife to the point where he's having to drive home from work and have sex with her and then go back to, I'd be like, okay, that's, it's starting to mirror an addiction. I don't have to put a moral spin on it. He's having sex with his wife, but his dependency on it is so high that it's become like an addiction, right? I'd be okay using that term. Yeah. However, some psychologists, and this is just food for thought, 
some psychologists reject categorically the existence of behavioral addictions. They think it muddies the water. They think it's not appropriate to utilize that term because behavioral addictions and substance addictions are too different. So they would use a different word. Yeah, they would just call it a disorder. Yeah, and I think I think using like words like obsessive compulsive are 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 good words or phrases right. that help us distinguish when things become a real problem. Right. You know, are you obsessive about it? You know, um, because you can be obsessive with a lot of things and it becomes a problem. Right. And, I mean, you can be obsessive about good things. Right. And they it becomes a difficult situation. Right. Right. So some people like truly, you know, loved something that's good, but they become very obsessive in it to the point of a neglect of so many other components of their life. Right. Right? And so obsessiveness is totally understandable. Mm. Like, you might have someone who views porn once a month, once a week, maybe even once a day. Right. But then you have someone who's super obsessive about their reputation. Right. Or their status in the community. Mm or their money situation. Right. And they're so obsessive that it affects like everything in their life. Like right. there's so much that's neglected in their world. But we would look at the person who views the porn and we go, that's the problem person. Right. And you can see how messed up we are. And that's why, you know, there are guys like David Lay, yeah. who we quote a lot, who he's one of those people that just rejects categorically yeah. the idea of, it seems like altogether behavioral addictions, but specifically sex addiction. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in the way that people like that speak, where it is a different thing. When I'm talking about obsessive behavior, it is a different category of thought altogether than the person whose body is literally dependent upon a chemical. Yeah, and right? so we and we try to make it really clear like this. The reason why we would steer clear of sexual addiction terminology, and this is so hard for us in the church, man, we'd love to do this. Is this is wise because we're not telling people don't have sex. We're right. not telling people don't look at nudity. Right. That is not what we're doing. Right. And this is how it is absolutely, totally, categorically different from substance abuse addiction. Right. You're right. Is we're asking people to get off of heroin, not to take it a little bit and <laughs> nurse that bad boy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just keep it to once a week. Keep yeah. the needle yeah. in just a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like we're saying, hey, let's try to really get off of this. Right. You know? Well, we don't. We're not wanting people to get off of sex. We right. want people to have sex. We're we're talking about doing it in a correct Christian ethic way. Right. And so that's a total different thing. Right. And so you could see where this this word, this sex addiction thing, is something that's used, but I don't think people are thinking through it well right. at all. I think it's a very just uh, great stamp right. um, to put on things, um, especially when you're trying to demonize something. Absolutely. And that leads us to the other thing, demonizing pornography. So demonizing pornography is not going to help. Um, porn is something that the men of faith fell to as well as secular people. Um, and when you demonize porn, you can be demonizing sex in the hearer's ears. Right. So we want to just make that really clear. Right. So 
when it comes to sexual experience, the majority of people, especially people nowadays, their first sexual experience, their first understanding of sex came through pornography, right? That's how they are understanding it. And so if I'm going to talk about what's wrong with porn, I'm going to have to be very specific in my language because there are different aspects to someone viewing porn. There's the porn that they're viewing, and then there's the sexual experience that they're receiving. I need to separate those two things and say the sexual experience is good. The means by which you had it is bad, right? I could even say the depiction, right, the sexual act that's depicted is good. The fact that it was depicted is bad, right? So, right. Uh, Or the, the nudity there is good. There's beauty there. The fact that it was presented right. in a cheap fashion to many different viewers, that's what's bad about it. Right. Right. So I have to be very specific about my language. Otherwise, as you said, Bo, people can start conflating it in their mind of like, oh, I, sex is bad. Right. As opposed to seeing the, what about pornography is bad. Yeah. And that, this is why we say the tragedy of porn in, in our culture is, is not the sexual act per se. Um, primary. It's the distribution of the sexual act. Right. That's the tragedy. Right. In our world. Um, and when those, when those, like you say, when things aren't uh, um, separated, like you separated them from the act to, um, you know, the distribution, then, and we're not clear with that. Right. That the sexual act is something God created. It is good. Right. It's just, it's not to be distributed to the world. Right. You know? And that's not how we are primarily to partake of our sexuality. Right. Is through someone else's sex. Right. You know, life and that kind of thing. Which is, a, you know, another reason why the term sex addiction is, is a difficult one. Mm -hmm. Because you can't contextualize heroin addiction. There's nothing to separate. You can't be right. like, well, the experience of being <laughs> high on heroin is okay, but the drug is what is the real problem. Right. It's like, no, no, no. The, the, the drug and the experience are the problem because they're one and the same. You can't separate them, right? You can't, you can't say to someone, well, it's okay to use heroin. Just don't get high. You know, just like the, that's not how it works, you know, but with sex, there is a separation. There is a, no, there's an experience and then there's an act and there's a distribution. There's ways to look at this. So, um, you know, like, like I said, we have worked with uh, various other counselors and people like that that are more comfortable with these terms, right? Uh, like sex addiction and porn addiction. But they're careful about their usage of them. Uh, when people are very cavalier about it, it will inherently demonize pornography and then it can, with it, start to demonize sex itself. Right. Very. And it usually happens like that where right. it demonizes sex very much. Right. You know, we live in a world of incredible indulgence. Right. So the reason why we we talk about porn addiction is because we recognize that something is good, sex, but we rec recognize that it has been distributed on a large scale throughout the society. Mm. And that large scale distribution has has made it so people can very much obsess upon it right but this has happened not just in 
sexual behavior. Right. This has happened across the board in affluent cultures. Mm. So, you know, that's why you hear this word porn now with other things, food porn. Right. You know, uh, there's all kinds of terminology that uses the term porn in it. Right. Because we recognize now that in an affluent culture, we obsess on anything. Right. Right. So you put out food. And so the person who's saying, oh, well, pornography is the problem, but they're 250 pounds. Yeah. You know, and they're five foot one. Right. You know, well, you don't think you got a food porn problem? (laughs) (laughs) You know, but that's what I mean. What do you watch? Oh, I watch Cupcake Wars. Right. You know, well, why? You know, why do you watch food all day? (laughs) Why are you fascinated with food? Right. I love it. See, it's the same answers that people watch porn. Right. That's what people don't get. And it's really fun. I was uh, was counseling this guy two weeks ago, and he was talking to me about his issues with porn. He's just like, well, I I need to get counseling. I need to figure out why I'm doing this. And I'm like, like, well, how, how much porn do you view? He's like, well, you know, like once a month, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try to fight it, but I'll kind of slip and I'll, I'll watch something. And I'm like, okay, how, you know, when you watch something, what are you watching? Are you, are you watching, you know, like really depraved, like sick stuff? Are you watching people getting tortured or child pornography? He's like, no, I'm just a man and a woman like having sex. I'm like, okay. Like, does it feel good? It's like, Yeah. Like, do you think that the actress is attractive and you and you like the way she looks? It's like, yeah. I'm like, what if that's as deep as it goes? You know, like, what if that's as, what if it just doesn't go no deeper than that? You know, that there's no reason about it. It would be again, like, like you're talking about with some people overeating. What if you went to someone who's eating cotton candy and you're like, why are you eating that? That's bad for you. You don't, you know? And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, well, there's something wrong. There must be a trauma in your past. That's causing you to eat this. You must hate yourself. And you go, how do- <laughs> how often do you eat it? And they go, once a month. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, man, something must have took place. Dude, in because why would you eat this why self-destructive thing? Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and it that, might just be as simple as it tastes good. Yeah. And that's the interesting part is the people answer, the people who watch porn or people who watch Cupcake Wars are the people who are into, you know, dirt bike or the people who are into skateboarding. And the people into surfing all say the same exact things right. about the obsession. Right. You know, man, it really captures me. Right. I get very sucked into it. Right. You know, sometimes I even want to act on it. Mm. You know, on I, I become compulsive. Right. You know, I can't really control exactly not thinking about it. Right. It's something I want to do every day. Mm. You know, and it's like. That's so weird, right? Right across the board, and that's a, that's a really good point that you're making as well. Where, you know, if I'm just talking to someone who's a little overweight, I'm not gonna assume that there's some strange underlying reason underpinning their eating habits, right? Right. It's like you, you probably bad food tastes good, <laughs> exercise is tough. That's probably as deep as it goes. <laughs> but if I'm talking to some, like I, I have talked to this guy, and he wasn't that big. But he would wake up in the middle of the night, every night, and he would just gorge himself on cupcakes and Twinkies for like <laughs> an, an hour stash. straight. Yeah, he would like not eat the entire day, and he would just wake up at midnight and just eat all the food. And then 
when his wife was like, man, where where all the Twinkies go? He would blame the kids. Now I'm like, okay, there's probably something there. <laughs> you know, like there's there's something off there that's going on that I want to investigate, you know? Because that's it's not the fact that he's overweight that I'm looking at. It's the obsessive nature to his pursuit. Yeah. That's that's the problem, right? If I'm if I'm talking to a guy who watches porn once a once a month, I'm okay. If he's watching porn while he's at a business meeting, right, and he's like looking at it while he's talking to somebody. Yeah, if you're in class at the right. U of A, and you just can't get through a class, right, without putting on some, you know, image searches. Right. There's <laughs> there might be something there, right? Yeah, it's there reached be... a level of obsessiveness. That's why obsessive right. compulsive, right is to me the better term right? because it goes across the board. Right. And it makes us look at people that – it moves us away from the moral, right. cultural component, right? right? That what the, what the culture deems is right and wrong based on its ethic right. ideas. And it moves us into something that we can really quantify within a person's life. Mm. This person is very compulsive on this issue, right? you know? They have to watch the news. Like, how many people are into news porn? Right. And you ask them, why do you put it on every day? Right. Why is CNN on all 24 hours, all the day long in your house? I feel like I need to know everything I need to know. Yeah. I feel compulsive to it. I feel like it, it's helping me. I mean, it sounds so much like someone else right. who's into another compulsive behavior. And that's... You know, I, I put this in my first book, uh, The Rooted in Sin Rescued by Love book, that the reason why we need to be careful about it as well is it detracts from the really important and integral word of sin in Christendom. Right. Right. Where what the word addiction tends to do is it tends to filter into this category of disorder or disease where people can look at it and be like, well, you know, A it's not really my fault and B there's like this, you know, compulsion and that's why I'm doing it. And there's this trauma. The word sin just comprises the idea of you're doing something wrong. It doesn't matter if it's compulsive or not. It's sinful. It's wrong because it puts you in conflict with God and his glory, right? It's, it's a wrong thing to do. That's the better term to utilize. So when we're when I'm talking about these guys and I'm saying, hey, I don't think it goes any deeper than the fact that you just like it and that's it. That's not me excusing their behavior. That's me explaining it's a sinful behavior, but it's not a compulsive or an addictive behavior, right? The only reason why, again, we utilize these terms is because they help us to an extent figure out what's the best way of helping this person out of the behavior, but they're not as they're not as useful as people think first off and secondly they can be detrimental if they're overused yeah good stuff so that was our last little caveat on those terms yeah. and so that that ends our presentation and they could always pick up uh, your books at Amazon just look up Peter Martin and uh, you could uh, buy his books and uh, check it out yeah, it'd be good stuff. Good workbooks. Or one of them's a workbook, one of them's a book. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have we have other workbooks on our site too. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Go to runninglight.org you know, and you could check out our other workbooks that are more kind of, 
you know, group group books to go over or with a mentor, things like that as well. So um, if you guys do have any questions, you certainly can email us at peter at runninglight.org or Bo, B-E-A-U, at runninglight.org and get in touch with us. So we certainly would love to do this presentation uh, over a weekend at uh, any kind of uh, university uh, yeah. kind of uh, seminary um, place. That would be awesome. Yeah. Any college campus um, that's really trying to raise up ministers. Uh, we think it's an important message for people. And hopefully they, you guys can all see why now. <laughs> you know. So thanks for listening. Okay, you guys take care. Bye-bye. Check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series, Take Flight and Love or Lust. You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.